Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, guys, we were allowed a, a brief moment of wintry joy. Brief, it being 2020, of course. Snow. We had an actual picturesque snowfall. In this Washington. is so predictable. You know, Washington got all excited for our first snowstorm. Nobody actually believed there was going to be a real snowstorm in Washington, but we all pretended to believe it because it's Washington and we're, we're supposed to get geared up for the snow. And then, of course, we are on the border between where it snows at all and where it's just rain. And so it starts as snow or starts as sleet and then turns to rain and we're all disappointed. But that's what happens. That's always what happens in Washington on the first snow. I actually thought it was kind of perfect. Like these big, beautiful, fluffy flakes came down. It did cover the ground. My kids ran outside and like made, you know, little snowballs. And then the rain melted it away. And now I don't have to shovel. Well, I wouldn't speak so quickly about the rain melting it away because as I look outside, I think we're going to have that classic Washington thing where tonight it's all, all the slush will turn to ice and tomorrow will be slipping and sliding and horrible. But here's the awesome thing about 2020, guys. We don't have to commute in it. <laughs> Yay. We work from home. And since if this turns out to be Washington's first ice storm of the year, that is a good opportunity to watch the wonderful Ang Lee movie, The Ice Storm, which I commend to everybody. Things just got freaky. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the disbarred edition. I'm Shane <laughs> We have been waiting for the disbarred edition for like, how how long has it been? Has there been an ongoing Bill Barr death watch? No, but... But we had the pun locked and loaded. Yeah, and so... been, I mean, I've been waiting for a world without Bill Barr for so long now. And maybe now people can stop reminding me that I uh, thought he would be a good idea. I was just about to do that. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I bet you were. <laughs> the two go together. <laughs> it's like Oreos and milk, man. You can't separate them now. <laughs> uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Gladly not shoveling. I'm really glad not to shovel either. I'm with you, Susan. I think that it was a nice fluffy snow, and then now it's just, it's beyond Yeah. Snow. Although now that Tammy mentions the ice, it does make me think that maybe I should shovel the walk. You know, it's um, coming. It's coming. Yeah. Put the little pellets and the little melty down, but, uh, you know, use the pet safe variety. On the podcast this week, Attorney General Bill Barr, you remember him, exits the stage. Gone. <laughs> not forgotten. Uh, well, yeah, probably not. We'll talk Gone. about that. <laughs> Did he leave before Trump could fire him? A massive computer hack attributed to Russian intelligence may have exposed dozens of companies and government agencies. 
And in the face of that and other Russian threats, how is a Biden administration likely to change U.S. policy towards Moscow? Uh, So let's start with Bill Barr, the aforementioned. Uh, I guess he will be your attorney general until December 23rd. So he's leaving on the eve of Christmas Eve, spend some time with the grandkids, you know. He probably wasn't able to do the famous Bill Barr uh, holiday party this year. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, although it hasn't, isn't stopping anybody else from ha- holding maskless yes. uh, large events. Uh, so I'm not sure why he wouldn't. Uh, uh, he ha- he uh, obviously, Ben, has been reported and rumored for some weeks that President Trump was furious with his attorney general, particularly over the investigation into Hunter Biden, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. But let's start with Barr's resignation letter, which I have to say was one of the more unusual I've seen in Washington. I just want to read one section of it. I am greatly honored that you called on me to serve your administration and the American people once again as Attorney General. I am proud to have played a role in the many successes and unprecedented achievements you have delivered for the American people. Your record is all the more historic because you accomplished it in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. Your 2016 victory in which you reached out to your opponents and called for working together for the benefit of the American people was immediately met by a partisan onslaught against you in which no tactic, no matter how abusive and deceitful, was out of bounds. The nadir of this campaign was the effort to cripple, if not oust your administration with frenzied and baseless accusations of collusion with Russia. Um, If that sounds like the North Korean news anchor lady, it's because she could have written this letter. I also want to say that relentless implacable resistance is an awesome name for a band. And it's my... Relentless implacable existence, uh, 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 resistance, and it's my nominee uh, for our music band uh, this week. Well, now we can't just repeat it. I'll have to find a new one, but that's a very good idea. Um, so, Ben, I mean, this this letter is over the top by any standard, and I mean there are and there are just things in it. I think we would all agree are. Um, you know, Gumby-like stretches of the truth about not outright falsehoods. But it strikes me as a particularly unusual letter for Barr to write, given that we know that his reputation has suffered so much in the eyes of many people in the legal community and beyond because he was viewed as a political cheerleader for the president and a hatchet man in some cases. And I think this letter sure doesn't do much to disabuse us of that idea. So why do you think he wrote it this way or wrote it at all? <laughs> well, look, I've kind of given up trying to understand why Bill Barr does the Bill Barr thing. Uh, None of it has made a lot of sense to me. In this case, I kind of take it at face value that at some level, he really does believe that Trump is more sinned against than sinning, which I think a lot of Trumpists convince themselves of. And I, I, I don't see any reason to doubt that you know, Bill Barr has convinced himself of this. Um, But I also think he's a reasonably clever tactician, and he knows that there is no way he is going to uh, rehabilitate his image in the eyes of the center and center-right and left, and not to mention, you know, the center-left, sort of like the the non-Trumpist worlds are not going to see him as anything other than a, a villain. And the risk for him right now is that the Trumpist world comes to see him uh, and Trump himself comes to see him as, you know, somebody who did not stand up for the president in his hour of need and didn't do what was necessary to go after 
the Bidens and and to, you know, go after election fraud and that sort of thing. And so you go out with a warm meeting with the president, which the president uh, describes in the tweet. You go out with an obsequious letter that it is hard for the president to be uh, churlish in the face of. And the president kind of lets you go with a with warm words rather than with a bileful, angry uh, set of tweets. And I, I think, at least so far, he's sort of accomplished that. And, you know, that's maybe from his point of view, both what he believes and tactically clever. I guess I just remain sort of confused uh, not just by the like sort of point of Bill Barr's tenure generally, um, but also sort of specifically by what happened here. So Ben, I think you offer like a totally plausible explanation that uh, Barr sort of anticipates he's going to get ousted uh, either because he won't engage in further compromises or because the president's mad that he didn't publicize the Hunter Biden investigation or whatever else. And so he writes this letter in an effort to like, you know, uh, basically not be screamed at on his way out the door. Oh, I, I have sort of seen it presented as maybe this was Bill Barr's last stand, right? This was him standing up to the president because uh, he didn't want to go along with this sort of voter fraud conspiracies. I certainly don't see it that way as some sort of profile and courage. And to the extent that was the intention, it's completely undercut by this completely bizarre fawning letter that I feel like should have been written on pink paper with like hearts over the the letters and Mrs. You know, Mr. <laughs> Attorney <laughs> General <laughs> Trump written everywhere. Totally. Right. And so um, so what is the purpose here? Right. Why not just stick it out another 30 some odd days um, and kind of let the natural transition occur? Um, so in terms of sort of the immediate situation, I remain basically baffled um, by the whole thing. Um, I also think it does nothing to rehab Bill Barr's reputation. Um, I agree with Ben that he genuinely believed that sort of the liberals were out to get Donald Trump. Um, He was an incredibly effective political operator for the president, and he was quite effective at wielding the Department of Justice and eroding important norms um, in service of the president's political agenda. Um, And he was really effective in demonstrating to the rest of us and to the public how thin and fragile those norms really are. And so Bill Barr was a bad attorney general. Um, I think history will judge him as an extraordinarily uh, sort of malicious actor uh, in this period of history. Um, I I think the bigger question, though, are what are the lessons of Bill Barr's tenure um, and how are we going to uh, approach sort of the rehabilitation of the Justice Department and the restoration of those norms um, and all of the comparison to post-Watergate and the Levy guidelines, sort of how do you Bill Barr-proof the Justice Department in the future? And and that remains an incredibly complex, difficult question um, for the very reason that Ben said. Bill Barr is a really, really smart, savvy actor. And so sort of 
restoring the damage after a Matt Whitaker type attorney general, uh, I think would would be far simpler. Um, figuring out what to do from somebody who has um, facially complied with and yet uh, violated the spirit of all kinds of really, really important uh, norms of independent law enforcement, a political law enforcement, um, and sort of breached the compact between the career civil service and the political levels and uh, and, and, and essentially the president's relationship with, with the Department of Justice, that's that just is a really, really difficult question to even begin to answer. You know, I guess maybe a couple of thoughts in response to the puzzlement that you expressed, Susan, and that to a degree I share. One dark thought, which is that we know this resignation was not entirely his choice, There is an obvious question about why not just let him serve the extra 30 days. And to me, one possible answer to that is that there are things the administration wants to do in the last 30 days that Bill Barr wasn't on board with. So just as we have to worry about that with respect to the Defense Department, I think we have to worry about it with respect to the Justice Department. Someone else is going to be in charge. And, you know, What both you and Ben pointed out is that at the end of the day, there was a divergence between Bill Barr's brand of pro-Trump Republican conservative and a true dyed-in-the-wool Trumpista, I will go anywhere Donald Trump wants me to go. And, you know, some people may have started in the first category and moved into the second, But Bill Barr always stayed in the first category. Now, on a lot of things, like Mitch McConnell, um, his interests and his view of the presidency and his conservative ideology were congruent with what the president wanted to do. And so he was perfectly willing to go along with, you know, conservative interpretations of Justice Department authority, with anti-LGBT policies in the Justice Department, with doing what Trump wanted on the Russia investigation because his ideological view was that the president shouldn't be investigated for this stuff, um, regardless of what he actually thought about Donald Trump. And then finally, the electoral fraud. You know, so the interesting question to me is, how do people who remain in Bill Barr's category that is congruent with Trump, but not all, not all, all, all in for Trump, How do they stay there? You know, what's going to happen after Trump leaves the presidency and continues his media assault and his primary challenges and other things to enforce his views on the Republican Party? What happens to that group of people? And, you know, to your question about how do we rescue the Justice Department, I mean, I want to hear what you guys have to think. But it strikes me that to the extent that Barr was just going to the wall on a set of conservative hobby horses about how the Justice Department should function, well, I don't think you can defend against that. Okay, so Tammy has just articulated succinctly the sort of Jack Goldsmith theory of Bill Barr, which is to say that he is somebody who has a highly expansive view of the presidency and its powers. He's you know, less offended by Trump than people like us. And he's very keen to defend the legitimacy of those powers. And so this has a significant overlap with Trumpism, but it's not Trumpism. And I don't see how you reconcile that 
with the text of the letter that Shane read, which reads to me like somebody who is in fact all in and whose behavior in loosing John Durham to run down every little conspiracy theory that anybody you know, on Newsmax has ever entertained is much more consistent with somebody who's actually all in than it is with somebody who's a kind of principled conservative who maybe has a little bit of a blind spot on the how bad Trump is side. Look, that's where I started. And I've come around to thinking Bill Barr is most of what the left thinks he is which raises the question that Shane started with here, which is, okay, so what's the part that's too far even for him? And I don't know what the answer is. He's not above disclosing investigations because, you know, that's what he did with Durham. He disclosed all kinds of stuff about the Durham investigation. So I don't buy the keeping Hunter Biden secret thing. I just, I don't understand the answer to that question. I share Susan's befuddlement. Like, what is it that prevents Bill Barr from being the adequate faithful servant for the last 34 days of Donald Trump? Yeah, look, I I personally ascribe to the uh, Bill Barr as a really smart person whose brain was rotted by Fox News and that ultimately the thing that best explains and most easily explains Bill Barr's behavior over the past several years is if you had somebody like that who somehow became a true believer in Uranium One and all kinds of completely deranged conspiracy theories um, and and sort of viewed himself as a defender against all of that, um, there is one way in which uh, Bill Barr's departure Uh, should have an immediate impact, but won't, and I think really stands for the ugliness of Bill Barr's ultimate tenure. Um, And that's the Trump administration's decision to continue to pursue federal executions in the period uh, after the election, in the transition period. This has never happened before. I think there are five additional uh, individuals who are scheduled to be executed in the next 35 days. This is just appalling stuff that, that, that Bill Barr would be pushing this if Jeff Rosen decides to continue to pursue it, even as a non-confirmed acting attorney general. You know, at the end of the day, whenever we take a step back and think about the legacies that really, really matter, um, you know, the attorney generals who do things that um, dramatically uh, shape the world, uh, those are the things that I I think 10 and 15 years from now we're going to look back on uh, with astonishment even more so than sort of the the specific legal positions that he uh, advocated for the department to take in, in whatever, uh, you know, court case on executive power. All right. <clears throat> well, in the category of everything old is new again, Russian hackers. All up in the business. So Somehow hackers. we just circled back around to where the Trump administration started, right? Oh, boy. There's a thought. Russian you could do it all over again. What would you do differently? Oh, God. <laughs> the Trump part. <laughs> I was going to say something darker, but that's good. I like that. Oh, it's, it's true. Good. In retrospect, Ben, that did turn out to be an error, electing <laughs> Donald Trump president. No, no, the, the With whole... the benefit of hindsight. No, it's not just the election of... It's the nomination of, it's the prominence of the whole part over the last five years where Donald Trump's names get gets mentioned every day and we're thinking about him a lot. That's the basic problem. 
Yeah. I would have started doing doing yoga earlier. Um, let's see. So this week brought new news that new news, old news uh, that Russian hackers uh, believed to be associated with the SVR, which is their equivalent of the CIA have been inside the computer networks for some time of many government agencies, including, I believe at last count, the State Department, Homeland Security, the National Institutes of Health, I'm sure I'm missing some others, as well as a number of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, It has now been determined that these hackers got in via a flaw uh, which I don't know that we know particularly how they exploited just yet, uh, and a piece of software manufactured by a company called Solar Winds, which is basically something that runs in the background, kind of like the plumbing of a lot of computer infrastructure. Uh, and the Russians essentially managed to find out a way to penetrate this software, build a backdoor into it, and use that as a way to get into the networks of the companies and agencies that were running this software. So a fairly straightforward Trojan horse kind of uh, attack. It went unnoticed for some time until the leading cybersecurity company, FireEye, uh, exposed it after revealing that they too had been hacked and the intruders made off with some pretty sophisticated uh, technology that the company uses when they're trying to test weaknesses in their clients' network. So essentially hacking tools. Susan, put this into some context for us. Hacks and compromises happen all the time. Government agencies have been penetrated before. So have lots of companies. So why is this incident significant? Yeah, so it's going to take a really long time to understand um, the full scope and scale of this. Um, Based on what we already know, um, this is likely going to be one of the most significant and consequential uh, hacks of the U.S. government maybe ever, right? Certainly um, in the last couple of years. Um, So this is the number of agencies or... Yes, yeah, so I think it's the um, the the scope of the uh, the potential compromise, right? So the, the sheer number of uh, of sort of networks that they were able to gain access to. Early reports do seem to indicate that this was perpetrated by somehow uh, sort of compromising the the, the servers, uh, right? So sort of a supply chain style compromise that wasn't kind of hacking into networks later on, but instead compromising uh, sort of the supply chain. Something that obviously is a source of a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, look, it takes a really long time just to understand uh, what has actually happened here. So just because this software and even this particular uh, essentially backdoor or compromise uh, is present on a given network doesn't mean that network network was compromised. So we know that uh, essentially the potential for this hack was uh, is very, very widespread. Early reports do suggest that only several dozen very high value targets were actually compromised using it. Um, So it's just going to take a really, really long time to understand the nature of those networks. Where was it and what and what was where was it actually um, sort of used and deployed? And so um, we should be cautious as we get early reporting about, well, you know, the Treasury Department had it, DHS had it, uh, national security agencies might have had it, right? These are these are complicated questions. And a lot of times there's going to be conflation between um, mere acknowledgement of the presence or the possibility versus actually identifying the compromise. Um, this is a crisis on top of a crisis, right? So remember, um, we still aren't super sure how, I don't know, shadow brokers uh, managed to compromise the National Security Agency. Um, you know, so this is a big deal and a pretty big sort of, oh, shit kind of moment. Um, 
to the extent that actual national security systems uh, were compromised, there's going to be sort of an immediate scramble to understand, okay, uh, what did they get? What was taken? What's compromised? What's vulnerable? Just kind of um, gaining sort of that immediate awareness. I think, I think it's significant and sort of shows uh, the uh, the severity of the issue that uh, Robert O'Brien, uh, the national security advisor, suddenly came home uh, from his uh, world tour with his wife, um, reportedly seeing the Louvre and doing all other other kinds of uh, fancy things while on official business. How nice for him. Um, the fact that he rushed home, a little bit of an indication of how big a deal this is. Um, you know, sort of, sort of understanding the incident response, um, there's kind of the, there's the civilian world um, and sort of government systems, and that's going to be run by CISA. Um, the rest of the world, as far as the U.S. government is concerned, the sort of national security systems, uh, NSA is going to be kind of leading the response and FBI there, and, and, and is going to be sort of working uh, through these things called requests for technical assistance to provide support to all of the other civilian agencies. And I don't know, maybe in a year or 18 months, we'll start to get reports about what happened, what are the actual lessons learned. Um, I think there's two big significant pieces now to kind of think about in terms of context. Um, so the first one is, uh, was this an attack and how should we respond? So we've seen a lot of people, um, including members of Congress, describe this as a cyber attack or, or sort of an attack that, um, that demands a response. Um, certainly, this is a really significant compromise. And we, we do have to think sort of um, uh, the Biden administration in particular is going to have to think hard about how to respond. Um, that said, this looks a lot more like kind of traditional espionage that we're pretty familiar with. And so um, while we uh, uh, do not condone and respond strongly to uh, uh, espionage against us, it's not quite the same as sort of um, the, the normative lines we try and draw against particular types of cyber attacks. So just conceptually sort of thinking about this more as espionage uh, than an actual attack. And the other, I think, big question is what this says about kind of the U.S. government's um, so-called defend forward strategy. So this is an idea that um, essentially, you know, U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency in their information assurance mission of defending national security systems, which is not the same as all U.S. government systems everywhere, um, you know, but, but these important sensitive systems, um, they're defending uh, essentially by being in the networks of potential adversaries um, uh, and getting that kind of intelligence and awareness about what's going on. Um, this is a clear intelligence failure. It happened. We didn't see it. You know, that said, I, I think people who are using this moment to say, oh, look, this entire defend forward strategy is a bad one. Um, uh, and this proves it doesn't work uh, are a little bit misunderstanding kind of the, the concept here. It's not that you defend forward in somebody else's networks and then you give up a sort of traditional defense at home, nor that it's a failure if you don't catch every single thing. Um, but those are going to be the kinds of big, this is a big enough breach to, to, to really make us want to um, revisit and reevaluate those, those big and significant policy questions. Look, I, I think that you're right, Susan, to raise this issue of, you know, is it fair to criticize the defend forward strategy on the basis of this? But I do think that the way this happened reveals like a fundamental vulnerability, cybersecurity vulnerability, which is not only a problem for the U.S. government. It's a problem for everybody, you know, businesses, individuals who care about privacy and cybersecurity, which is the vulnerability that we all have to the software supply chain on which we all rely, 
right? The government is never, the U.S. government anyway, is never, ever, ever going to build all of its own solutions for everything it does in-house in a way that it can completely control. That means it's always going to be buying software from outside vendors. And that means that those vendors are always potential vectors for an attack, like the way this happened where you know, this software company's software update was infiltrated with malicious code. And then when you upload the update, because you trust the company that you contracted for the software, you get the malware. You know, can the U.S. government do a better job of trying to work with its vendors to have sort of a common set of security protocols and criteria? Can the industry come up with better security certifications? Yes. But that problem in the supply chain is always going to be there because we're all dependent on companies that are going to come up with solutions, tech solutions for what we need. That to me is just an ongoing challenge. I don't know how to solve it. I think the other thing that I'm thinking about is that apparently this vulnerability was first uploaded by some users of the software back in March. This isn't weeks or even a couple months. This is like months and months and months of access um, that these guys have had. And like you said, it's going to take a really long time, even in the cases where, you know, it's very obvious that they got into these systems. But just think about all of the infiltrations we'll probably never know about in American companies, in think tanks, you know, which have been targets for foreign government infiltrations in the past, you know, other sensitive like local infrastructure. I just think that the the scope of this is really frightening and the way that it happened is not easy to address even if you devote tons and tons of resources to it. So I just don't know how much the after action is going to help us prevent it from happening again. I want to shift gears and talk about a different aspect of this, which has been bothering me a lot. I think it's very under-discussed and really important, which is why do people keep naming systems with the word wind preceded by a two-syllable space word starting with S? You would think after stellar wind, you would know that if you didn't, that if you wanted your system to be secure, you don't name it solar wind. It's That's like, like a synonym anyway. It's like it's like asking for the like wind. like the Russians yeah. see a system called solar winds and they're like, we can get that. <laughs> you know. So I just wanted to say to everybody who's developing systems, if you don't want the NSA in your systems and you're a telecom company, you don't want the Russians, name it something else. There's like a lot of words out there. Just name it dull box. Yeah, just just boring old shit system. You know, don't look here. Come here for a sophisticated policy discussion, people, and that's what you get. On the point, though, of this company who, I mean, I mean, how would you like to be, by the way, the CEO or the chief security officer of that company right now and realizing that you were the weak link in the chain? I mean, it's not as though this is a uniquely American problem, right? I, I like Susan's framing of this. And when I talked to sources about it in the past week, they're kind of looking at this as this is a major intelligence success by Russia. 
There are also strong indications that other groups, not known what countries they're affiliated with, have also taken information from Russian intelligence agencies by exploiting the companies and the contractors that they use. There's there's always a way into the system. And also along the lines of Susan's statement that just because a company or an agency is running solar winds, don't assume that if a Russian got into it, that they're into something like the holiest of holies of the network. It doesn't mean just because you got in the network, you can get everything. So you have to put some contacts in it. Um, but, you know, this is this is a tactic that frankly, we use, that the Israelis use, that the Chinese use. I mean, what you're witnessing here, and it's big and it's scary, is also it's tradecraft in the cyber age. Not that that ameliorates it, but it's just sort of like it puts it in some context. No, it's a morally neutral thing. This, as Susan said earlier, this is espionage. This isn't, you know, killing Alexei Navalny or, you know, attacking people abroad. This is shit that countries do. And there's no point in getting angry at the Russians for doing it any more than there's any point in getting angry at the Chinese for the OPM hack. We do this kind of thing. They do this kind of Jim thing. Jim Clapper sort of congratulated for them. When, when this they is the that. game. You know, you know, good. Tra- they, they did a good job here. It raises a a series of interesting and difficult problems and like how to secure your systems, how to discourage this sort of behavior. I will say that there is a serious side about the joke about the name of the company, which relates to the point that you just made. How would you feel if you were the chief systems officer of that company or the chief executive of of that company? And the answer is you'd feel damn relieved that there's no liability for software vendors. And that should change. You know, like when you market a product that invites the Russians into highly secure systems, we should really be thinking about what the liability regime for that kind of damage is. Yeah, look, I I would briefly, um, uh, while I agree it's traditional espionage, I would not say that it is morally neutral or that we, uh, the motivation uh, of the actors in question is a a pretty dramatic um, factual difference that I think we should keep in mind. Um, One thing I think people should sort of recognize is um, this is the kind of event in which everybody is going to use it to argue that they were right all along. And if the thing they really care about is um, a particular supply chain security policy, they're going to say, see, if only you done this and this is why you should do this with Huawei. Uh, if they think that uh, they have a particular sort of dog in the vulnerabilities equities fight. See, this is a reason why the government should disclose all vulnerabilities. This is a reason why the United States shouldn't behave in this behavior. This is the reason why NSA and Cyber Command should be sort of separated. This is why the funding that I care about should happen. Right? This is one of those sort of amorphous big moments in which nobody really quite knows what's happened yet and therefore all of these actors are going to be rushing in, you know, to sort of to use it to make their long-standing point about why the thing that they care about and the thing we need to do to be secure for the future um, uh, is now even more right than it was before. And, and that makes it really difficult to sort of um, sort through all of the analysis as it actually applies to sort of what actually happened here. It, the answer to that is we still don't know other than that it was bad. Well, if you ever needed a reminder of the creativity of Russian intelligence operatives. Look no further than the case of Alexei Navalny, who we've just mentioned uh, earlier. We talked about on the podcast before, a very prominent Russian political activist and dissident. A new Bellingcat investigation came out this week doing sort of a TikTok or a blow-by-blow 
of the poisoning of Alexei Navalny with Novichok, which they have now put some more, a lot more meat on that bone, uh, even attributing some of the people involved with it. Uh, one section of it that has gotten a lot of attention uh, recounts how Alexei Navalny and his uh, party that he was traveling with when he got sick were sitting around a bar around 1115 in the evening, and he ordered a Bloody Mary. And then it continues, the bartender surprised him by saying they didn't have the necessary ingredients and offered a Negroni cocktail instead. Navalny accepted the suggestion, but told us he couldn't take more than one sip as the cocktail tasted like the most disgusting thing I've had in my life. I don't know. Just a matter of taste. I think the cronies are great. About 15 minutes later, he left the party and headed for his room just after midnight. People sent a text message, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it, the thinking, of course, being here is that he was, I guess, poisoned by the Negroni or that it was somehow slipped into uh, the cocktail that he had at the bar. Ben says, don't drink Negronis. Don't follow Ben's advice. They're delicious. You know, Negroni. We've talked about Navalny on, on the podcast before. You know, it, this falls now. This obviously we know more about this. It's, this is this is this is not new news. But you know, this coupled with the Russian hack, you know, coupled with God, just go through the litany of of the past four years, Tammy, um, with U.S. relations towards Russia. I think we presume that a President Biden will act quite differently than President Trump in his posture towards Moscow. Talk a bit about these recent events, though, and whether this puts pressure on him to do something dramatic or, or even more broadly, how an incoming president maybe feels pressure to make an abrupt change in policy when there is this sort of heightened tension with an adversary that perhaps has gone unaddressed by the predecessor. Yeah, look, I I think there this is very tricky ground for the incoming administration in a lot of ways. I think that the dilemmas of how to approach the relationship with Russia mirror broader dilemmas facing the Biden administration in foreign policy. You know, there is this sort of overarching pivot, which actually began at the end of the Obama administration and carried through the Trump administration and is now which is the return of geopolitical competition, the rise of really significant challenges to American predominance from Russia and from China. And it's something that the Trump administration never really had policy around because the Trump administration never really put the pieces of its policy together. And because on Russia in specific, Trump himself was so reticent to be tough or to be difficult or even to state clear expectations. But the other thing that happened during the Trump administration is that not only on Russia, but on a whole host of relationships, you know, Saudi Arabia probably being a really prominent one among them, but Egypt, Philippines, on and on, the Trump administration just didn't care about governments that were doing things that wildly transgressed basic norms for how states behave in the international arena. So Trump was kind of pushed at the very beginning of his administration into going along with the Europeans and expelling Russian diplomats for a poisoning attack. But you know, he never did that sort of thing again. And he never did that when when the Russians went after other dissidents abroad. And he never did it when the Saudis went against their own dissidents abroad. And Trump, of course, himself was the big norm breaker. And so Biden is walking into a situation where he has to try and draw boundaries for all these countries. Some are adversaries, some are friends, some are somewhere in between. 
And I think it's a tremendous challenge with the Russians specifically, you know, yeah, I think there are things he wants to do to show a tougher approach. I think that there's pressure in Congress to do that as well. Uh, but there are also priorities that demand cooperation with Russia, starting with the expiration of New START, the arms control agreement, right as he's getting inaugurated. Then you get to climate change. You get to the hope for renewal of international negotiations with Iran on its nuclear program. You get to Russian involvement in civil war in Syria. On all of these things, I think Biden's first move is going to have to be getting together with America's friends and then he can be tougher on Russia in coalition, I think, than he can be alone. You know, but calibrating not just how much carrot and how much stick, but also how do you communicate your intentions clearly? In other words, if you can stay within these lines, then we can do stuff together. That, I think, is the challenge. So I have sort of a naive question about how to understand things like the Bellingcat report. So, you know, here is this really, really convincing, almost irrefutable proof, right? This minute by minute, play by play, who it is, who did what. But it's not as though there was any real plausible deniability before. It, it actually, it seems like Russia went out of their way to make it pretty clear that it was Russian state actors, right? Using a rare nerve agent is, is a pretty good way to claim responsibility. And so one thing that I'm sort of puzzling over is, is the report like this significant because it's altered the degree of plausible deniability in some important way? And now, uh, you know, there, there's a heightened pressure to respond. Is it that it gives the, it sort of it refreshes the news cycle and gives a new opportunity to respond? Um, does it reduce uh, sort of the, the flexibility of the incoming administration in ignoring it? Um, so none of this is to suggest that the that reports like this aren't really important and really illuminating. I'm not sure quite how to understand the new information that we have now and, and the role it might play in sort of altering uh, the, the, the response landscape, either for, for Biden or, or for any U.S. allies. So, I, look, I think Susan's question is exactly right. At one level, the Navalny report changes absolutely nothing. We all know who did this before. Uh, now we have chapter and verse on something that I don't think anybody seriously doubted before. And by the way, that Vladimir Putin didn't want anybody to doubt. If he'd wanted to kill Alexei Navalny and have people doubt it was him, uh, Navalny would be, you know, in an alley somewhere beaten up uh, and dead. And then, you know, you could say he got mugged by, you know, by local thugs, right? Putin wants everybody to know this is him and he wants to deny it anyway. That's part of the game. And that's so the significance of this is not that it reveals something we didn't know, except the mechanics of how it happened. The significance of this is that because it reveals the mechanics of how it happens, it takes away the implausible deniability that you could pretend was plausible deniability. So Think about the way Donald Trump responded to the Khashoggi killing, right? You know, he could decide to, however implausibly, to believe MBS, that he was shocked and had nothing to do with it. Um, and the more, you know, the more detail you have, the harder that is to do. Now, for the incoming Biden administration, I don't think it matters at all. 
because the Biden administration was going to come in with the same Russia question, which Tamara started this conversation with, which is, and Shane started this conversation with, which is how do you rein back in this monster that has been allowed to prowl un, unleashed over the last four years? And that question is exactly the same whether the I's are dotted and T's are crossed on this particular assassination attempt or not. It's a very big question. And let's just, I think, frame it a little bit the way I would hope the Biden people are thinking about it, which is, you know, you have now four years of the United States not taking Russian attacks seriously. And it's Russian attacks on the United States it's Russian attacks on entities that the United States should care about the integrity of, even though they're not American ent entities, allied countries, and you have Russian attacks on individuals, both domestically, which you can sort of say is just a human rights issue, not very different from a lot of other countries' human rights issues, but critically on the streets of Berlin, London, and elsewhere, which you cannot say is like anybody else. And so the question is, how do you reestablish deterrence? And I think the best way to understand Putin here is that Putin is a second tier actor who has nukes, a lot of them, and he has a huge landmass that borders every important region in the world, except South America. And he is saying, he is essentially asking, how far can I go before you will actually take this seriously? Can I eat up Eastern Ukraine and Crimea? Well, yes. Can I attack my neighbors? Yeah. Can I keep uh, client states ringing me, the, what, what the Russians call the near abroad, and really prevent them from doing business with the West? Yeah. How much further can I go? And there has to be an answer to this question. And it has to be established quite early. And I think any reasonable Democratic or Republican administration prior to this one would have framed the question exactly that way. But because we've had four years of an administration that doesn't frame it that way, that says, how can we not respond to Russian provocations because anything involving Russia calls into question my electoral legitimacy? Anything involving Russia makes me feel bad. And I just want to, in Trump's words, get along with Putin. That's the way we've formulated the question. You have to come in with the objective of unwinding that policy. And that is a really, really tricky thing. And uh, Vladimir Putin is a smart guy and he knows you're coming in meaning to do that. And he is going to do a set of things to test whether you're committed to that. And that is going to be what the next six to nine months, year and a half, look like, and we're going to learn a huge amount about Joe Biden in the course of that time. I'll just, I agree with what Ben said, but just briefly to answer Susan's original question, there's another way in which Bellingcat making the details public is useful. And I think that is to the intelligence community. 
I know when I talk to intelligence officials in, in several governments, they seem to have a lot of respect for the Bellingcat guys. And in many cases, they do them the favor of, of making public levels of detail and really precise details that the intelligence agencies never could or couldn't easily because it's classified. And, and I think for with Russia in particular, and going back to the, the shoot down of the, of the passenger airliner over Ukraine and other incidents they've been involved in, particularly, you know, the, the poisoning of Scary Streetball, there's stuff that Bellingcat can kind of push out into the bloodstream that I think intelligence officials kind of quietly look at being publicized and saying, yes, good, because we believe that's true, too, and we want it out there and they can do it and do it credibly. So it kind of stands in for them in some ways, which is kind of interesting and helpful. All right. That uh, moves us on to object lessons. Mine is not a Negroni. Ben, you have a you have a special object. It's a, it's a multi-dimensional object. I do. I have a special living object lesson. <laughs> Our new associate editor, Rahini Karup, who uh, received an extraordinary email this week. And so my object lesson is I asked Rahini to come on the show and tell us about this Email that will bring a smile to uh, your lips. Rahini? Sure. Thanks for having me. So this is an email I received earlier this week with an interesting offer for rational security that involves someone who listeners will be familiar with. Um, And I'll read the note, which I think speaks for itself. So it says, hope you had a nice weekend. We're working on Michael Cohen's podcast, Mea Culpa, from Audio Up, which has been hugely successful since its launch with over 75,000 downloads per episode. Please see the attached one sheet for some additional information. Similar to his newly released book, Disloyal, the weekly podcast reviews his time spent with President Trump and aims to, quote, dismantle Trump's legacy, unquote. I'm reaching out to connect and see if you'd like to do a paid promotion for rational security on the show. (laughs) I look forward to hearing from you. And yeah. They want us to advertise, like do an ad for rational security on Michael Cohen's podcast. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's tempting, guys. Hey, hey, we could bring in a whole new listenership. This is a tax deductible contribution to his legal defense fund. <laughs> Let's remember, people, that Michael Cohen is currently on home confinement in lieu of his prison sentence. Yeah, yeah he's a prisoner. He yeah, is so a at least, prisoner. at least the podcast doesn't get interrupted with like an inmate from you know <laughs> Hyattsville Correctional Facility is attempting to call you. You have no credits remaining in <laughs> your upload. A federal prisoner writes us cold asking if rational security wants to uh, pay to uh, advertise on his podcast. And instead, we're giving him free advertising on our podcast. Exactly. You're welcome, Michael Cohen. So, Michael Cohen. You send money. On behalf of rational security. And the larger lawfare ecosystem. Uh, thanks for your offer. Um, no, we're, we we will not be starting our first paid advertising with uh, on your show. When we when we decide to pay for advertising, I think we'll probably go a different direction, as they say. Um, but uh, if you want to advertise your show on Rational Security. We'd be happy to entertain offers uh, in, in that direction. I don't know. It will cost one billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Well, adventures in marketing, indeed. Um, he's apparently making enough money to hire a publicist. Uh, Tammy, what's your object? Thanks, Rahini. It was so awesome to have you on. Uh, so my object is not a wonderful person who works for Lawfare, but rather an actual object that when you drop it on the table, it goes thud. And I am talking here about a new report that I co-authored with two colleagues that was released today by the Center for New American Security. It goes thud because it's 70 pages long and it is 70 pages of a new U.S. strategy for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What does that mean? It means that even though the Middle East is a mess and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not going in a good direction, we still had 70 pages worth of stuff that the United States could usefully, constructively do to move our conflict toward resolution. So I'm going to put it up on the show page. And uh, if you are as obsessed with hopeless causes as I am, please give it a read. <laughs> a useful report about a hopeless cause? Is that how you I don't know, it? Tammy. Jared still has 35 days to fix it. <laughs> yeah, I hope he's not holding his breath for that Nobel Prize. Ay, ay, ay. The Nobel Prize, maybe. The Ig Nobel Prize. Ig Nobel Prize, for sure. Oh, geez. Uh, well, my object lesson, uh, a bit of a sad one of sorts. I'm sure that listeners are aware uh, that this week uh, we lost John Le Carre, the I didn't even know how you would quite adequately capture the influence that he had over the genre of not just uh, English fiction, but the spy fiction genre, which safe to say he may have invented it uh, to some degree. Uh, uh, David Cornwell, his, his actual name, was born in 1931. He served, of course, uh, in the British Secret Service, both in MI5 and MI6. And people probably know most of his novels from the George Smiley series. What I thought was interesting about the obituaries this week is how many of them pointed out that the vocabulary, the lexicon, the sort of the world that we actually not just associate with, but actually is adopted by and used by people in the intelligence services, John le Carre invented that to some degree. I mean, the term mole for a, a spy or an infiltrator in your ranks, uh, that is a term that he essentially made up and certainly popularized, or the idea of a honey trap, someone who is uh, meant to be like a sexual lure to lure somebody into a compromising situation. So much of what we take for granted as being authentic to the intelligence community, a lot of it just sprang from his imagination. I think it's just a kind of a wonderful thing to remember not just about him, but about the power of literature to do that. And there was, uh, I thought my colleague, David Ignatius at The Post, captured this really well uh, in his remembrance. And David, of course, is an accomplished novelist in his own right. And he had this one last graph that I want to read because I think it it it, it does something, which is to sort of take Lacare out of the realm of just genre writers that I think is important. Uh, he said, Lacare's genius was that his reimaginings of people and events have proved more memorable than the real things. A handful of authors have similarly defined the periods in which they lived, Dickens, Tolstoy, Balzac, Flaubert, creators of unforgettable characters and the very air that they seem to breathe. It may seem strange to put John le Carre, the man who invented even his own name, in that league, but I suspect that a hundred years from now, readers will make that judgment. I think so, too. Yeah. It's great. It's a great time to pick up some of his old novels if you haven't read them or to reread them as David encourages oh, too. Very worth doing. Yeah, it's great. And can I just say, I would read the hell out of a Shane Harris spy thriller. Hey. If you ever decide to have oh, a yeah. career, Shane. 
Well, stay tuned. It'll have aliens, though, right? I can't promise this one will That's have aliens. That's a spoiler, Tammy. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but stay tuned. Stay tuned. And that brings us to the end of the podcast this week, you guys. And a housekeeping note, you are not going to hear from us next week because we're going to be taking a week off uh, during the Christmas week. So hopefully you all will celebrate and have a good time and relaxation. We don't have we don't have a scary ghost of Christmas past for you like we did at Thanksgiving. It was bad enough the first time. It was time bad enough. Know. Just just take it. We'll be gone. visited by three episodes in a dream. Though. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna play the episode that we did from Indonesia in eighteen seventy six at the time of the Krakatoa explosion oh, next week. Oh, wow. oh my goodness. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Uh, you can find uh, th- those great uh, outfits we wore in Indonesia. Remember that? They're at all Indonesia available Journey at store at the Lawfare store. It, totally. Dot Lawfare dot Indonesia. We only have them in one size. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us, of course, on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out and helps others find the show as well. Our audio engineer this week doing heroic work, as always, is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. This show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr and the, and the Frenzied and Baseless Accusations. Excellent. That's not bad. That's like the second best band name in his letter. Frenzied. Frenzied. Put that ring in your ears. Sophia Yan, neither frenzied nor baseless. But award-winning. Indeed. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you in two weeks, just before the end of this godforsaken year. Bye-bye. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.